This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen to our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I am a lawyer who handles workers' compensation cases. I practice in Salem, Massachusetts. And here on Workers' Comp Matters, we discuss topics relating to the workers' compensation system in general. And as you know, there are many types of workers' compensation cases. There are many jurisdictions that cover workers' comp, each and every state, with federal uh, government and certain other uh, maritime cases and railroad cases. Today we're going to talk, however, about the serious health problems that emanated from the tragedy on 9-11, the World Trade Center in specific in New York City, as well as the rescue efforts and the inability uh, of the state workers' compensation system uh, to deal with that. And to discuss these issues, I'd like to introduce our guest. He is Peter Romanier. Peter is a workers' compensation consultant and author. He recently wrote an in-depth article, actually a series of three articles, entitled Breach of Trust. It was published in Risk and Insurance Magazine. Now, Peter's background uh, is that he helps organizations as they negotiate through troubling waters of hazards, uncertainty, risk, and insurance, and his clients have included three of the ten largest workers' compensation insurers in the world. He also uh, advises a large number of medium-sized boutique organizations. He's written articles uh, for many of the high-circulating periodicals in the risk and insurance field. And since 2003, he has written a regular workers' compensation column for Risk and Insurance magazine. Peter is joining us today. I believe you're up in Woodstock, Vermont, Peter? Uh, yes, Alan, I am. And Hello. Th- thank you. Hello, and thank you for joining us. Let's talk a little bit about your article. What prompted you to uh, write this article and deal with the issue of injuries and death that came out of the tragedy on 9-11 in New York? Well, I'm asked by um, the editors of uh, the magazines I write for, in particular Risk and Insurance, to uh, cast a pretty wide eye on workers' compensation issues. And it became evident to me in 2005-2006 that something was going on terribly wrong in the workers' compensation system with regard to the rescue and recovery workers at the World Trade Center. So I invested a great deal of time um, uh, in in the last year to investigating this, and it it resulted in this series of articles. You know, one of the uh, things that I... uh that struck me is the numbers of, of potential uh, claims that are involved. And I think you quoted some statistics from NIOSH, which is the National Institute of, for Occupational Safety and Health, that there are perhaps 20,000 former rescue and recovery workers or volunteers that need to be treated for physical and mental conditions. <clears throat> yeah, there are actually sort of three sources. Uh, NIOSH is the upper end, around 20,000. If one looks at um, some work done by... Um, a Monsanto Medical Center in um, New York, as well as the mayor's, uh, Mayor um, Bloomberg's task force, it probably comes into about 10,000. The problem, Alan, is, is that we really don't know, and this is one of the tragedies which keeps on going on 
in the workers' comp space with regard to disease. The quality of recording of conditions in an OSHA kind of structure is very, very poor. And um, with these emerging conditions, you really need to be very careful about medically monitoring the workers. And that really isn't done except in very isolated situations. So we really don't know. There could be 2,000, there could be 20,000. Now, in your article, you seem to focus on several areas of substantial concern, one of which is, as you just mentioned, monitoring the physical and or emotional injuries that may manifest themselves. And as we know from the type of injury and the type of risk that this uh, World Trade Center collapse uh, generated, that we're going to be dealing with uh, occupational injuries or illnesses such as asbestosis, which can take many years to manifest itself before symptoms first become uh, apparent, as well as the post-traumatic stress issues and the other um, physical injuries. So uh, let's touch upon that. How is the workers' comp system dealing with the expected cases that may be coming out of this in the years to come and that have already uh, come out of it in the six years since uh, 9-11? Well, let me first start with insurer practices. Um, and bear in mind is that a lot of my work over the last 10 years has been actually with insurers, so I have gained some insights as to how they behave. Um, before we get into the actual laws, the practice of insurers with regard to these workers is really quite, it's very reactive <clears throat> and not constructive. First of all, when it comes to a disease claim, there's a tendency to deny the claim even if there is among us in the workers' comp field, no, there's a thing such as a pay without prejudice period, um, they really just go right for the denial. The related problem, and another problem is that in the construction environment where you have a stag staggered level of, of um, um, employers and often multiple employers within one employer group, um, it's very easy to dispute whether Mr. Smith was actually working for Long Island Excavation Company. I think you uh, refer to it as a Warren-like insurance arrangement where insurers are denying claims simply by fighting over which insurance company is involved. <clears throat> but, yeah, the, uh, there's a, I, I followed one case as a, a plaintiff bar attorney named Scott Clippinger who was nice enough to let me speak with one of his uh, clients, uh, and I used a disguised name, uh, and uh, Clippinger would go to these meetings in which there were five insurers represented on the other side of the table, uh, and they were, what the only way one could understand what was going on was that they were, they were sort of passing this hot potato amongst them. Uh, trying to have some other person take on the claim. Now, when things like that arise in the normal situation, we go to the administrative agency in Massachusetts, the Department of Industrial Accidents. New York has a compensation board. How has the state of New York uh, been able to deal with these types of issues and resolving them in an expeditious fashion? Since I'm not an attorney and aren't intimately involved with the operations of the re of regulatory apparatus in any state, uh, my assessments are sort of somewhat as a remote observer, uh, but there are two things that are come to mind. 
One is that um, there's no evidence that the board made any proactive effort to expedite these these claims. Um, uh, and also that the volume of claims was huge. There were about 10,000 claims that have been filed on the workers' comp, for workers' comp, and they don't seem to have made any effort to try to expedite them. There doesn't seem to be a special uh, task force. Uh, there doesn't seem to be special communications. And so um, I can only infer that before um, this mess came to them, uh, that they were probably not handling these disease claims very well to begin with, and that this simply uh, sank the ship, so to speak. And you point out in your article that uh, being a disease claim in New York, uh, accordingly the case would fall into a definition uh, in the state statute that may preclude a claim. And, and you point out that there was, uh, to the credit of the state of New York, a change in definition to make it a little bit easier uh, to claim uh, benefits. Can you uh, give us a background on how the state of New York defined a disease claim before 9-11 and then after? Yeah. Uh, now, I, I, Alan, I, I may have some of the notes a little wrong, but I think I have the music right on this, which is going back in the last 30 years or so, uh, many states, including uh, New York, narrowed the definition of um, of uh, the, 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 uh, the definition of a disease claim that was appropriate um, it for, to be accepted with workers' comp. And the governing <clears throat> provision, the one that, that's most important, is that if one is to have a valid disease claim, the disease has to be something that is regularly, uh, that the worker regularly is exposed to during his or her job. Uh, it's inherently part of the risk of the job. Now, um, if you think of a ground zero uh, or any kind of emergency kind of operation where you have some serious hazards um, uh, that that involve uh, disease exposure, uh, that kind of um, constraint basically means that the only people who are eligible for that kind of claim, um, of, you know, to file a claim, would be emergency responders and not truck drivers, <clears throat> or not, for that matter, probably not even volunteers coming into, into, the, into Ground Zero. So um, what happened was a, a kind of a, to me, a kind of an odd uh, makeshift um, formula happened, which is that the um, claims were filed not as disease claims, but as accident claims. <clears throat> now, this gets into, a, 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 frankly, a cockamamie situation where you have and the, the worker I, I profiled, he was working at the time of, of uh, and he was a truck driver, uh, he was working at the time of the morning of 9-11, uh, 20 miles uh, east of, of uh, lower Manhattan in Long Island. Uh, and then in about a week or so or a few days, he was uh, instructed to go in and start uh, pro handling some of the, the excavation. Uh, so, and, and he never came near any kind of traumatic uh, injury. But uh, <clears throat> that kind of claim would be filed as an accident claim. Okay, that's well and good, uh, even though that legal fiction seems to me a little odd. However, the New York law says that you must file an accident claim within two years of the event. Um, and that meant uh, September 02, September 03. That means that any claim that, had, that was going to be filed after September 03 
was invalid. Well, disease claims of this kind are emerging claims. So there are a lot of people who didn't file a claim until, uh, until later in 03, and so they were out of luck. Well, uh, it, it became evident, it should have become evident to the board, and it should have become evident to a lot of people that something was really, really, there was a train wreck going on here. And um, it, it took the legislature until 2006 to pass a law which says for these claims and only these claims, first of all, disease claims can be characterized legally, it's legally authorized, characterized as, as accident claims, injuries, and that the two-year two statute of limitations is waived. Now, they were originally said in the law, 2006 law, that these claims had to be submitted by August. Any claims that had not been submitted or had been defective in some way had to be submitted by August of 2007. Uh, sometime in the middle of last of this year, uh, they extended that, I think, for, the, for one more year. So they have another year or six months to file these claims. And I think the date is August 14th of 2008? That's, yeah, you, you got it right, yeah. They also did something else that is unprecedented in workers' compensation, and that is they set up a state registry so that the worker could uh, put his or her name on the registry without challenge to preserve his or her rights. So that uh, that has to be done also before August of 2008. Tell us a little bit about the registry. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, the registry was, um, uh, I, I asked around whether there's any history of a registry of that kind ever known in the workers' comp space. And um, to my knowledge, nobody I talked to knew that it ever happened. It was unprecedented. Um, um, I, I, I'm not sure if there is a lim time limit in which you meant to file, but the point here is that um, you are allowed to put a stake in the ground uh, and to be able to say, I may or may not have a claim in the future. Um, you know, I, I, the way I characterize this, uh, Alan, is sort of like what's called a report only. Uh, in the workers' comp space. Uh, a good example would be a needle stick uh, uh, event in a hospital where uh, the nurse um, wants to put something down so she or he uh, in the future could, could file a claim against it. Uh, but it, it actually was a, a constructive uh, step on the part of the legislature to do this. Now, I wonder, you know, just as an aside, um, when I first started handling workers' comp cases back about 30 years ago, there was a plant in Salem, Mass., uh, the Sylvania Electric Plant, that produced fluorescent light bulbs. And in the late 30s and early 40s, they used beryllium in the manufacturing process. And like asbestosis, beryllosis or beryllium disease would manifest itself anywhere from 10 to 20 years later. And the late Dr. Harriet Hardy at Mass General established a beryllium registry, which I think still may be in existence. And I'm wondering if uh, you might, have you uh, come across the beryllium registry as perhaps an example prior to the New York uh, experience? Yes and no. Uh, was the beryllium registry, did that in any way uh, provide some kind of uh, legal platform for the worker to file a claim? You know, and I think that may be the essential distinction. I think it was more of a medical uh, uh, only type of situation where you were looking at these classifications of employees, and it wasn't just employees, it was their family members who may have washed the clothing of the employees and get the beryllium powder. So I think it was more to uh, gather together um, a central database of these folks and follow their 
medical progress, but it was very helpful insofar as uh, proving these claims many years later. And I had one case that went all the way to the Supreme Judicial Court where my client was an early registrant in the beryllium registry, and when his symptoms manifested themselves in the 80s, uh, we at least had some data to go back to from the 60s. Was that, how, what was the outcome of the case? Uh, well, we won the case, but the, they took it all the way to the state Supreme Judicial Court on the amount of benefits, and uh, he collected benefits up until he, he unfortunately passed away uh, about six or seven years ago. But it was a, a fascinating case in terms of uh, how the, the exposure to beryllium back 40 or 50 or now 60 more years ago still today is producing uh, workers' compensation risks. One, 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 of the, one of the other things you talked about that gave me some concern, and I didn't really think about it, was the issue of worker safety and lack thereof. And uh, I remember back to the, the days, uh, the hours and days following 9-11 and the rescue efforts, the heroic rescue efforts, volunteer and non-volunteer that were going on. And nobody, I wasn't thinking about their safety, and yet that's something I think about a lot. Uh, apparently, it wasn't built into the system at all. And even giving some credit to to the governmental agency, federal and state, they were dealing with a much bigger crisis. But why don't you talk a little bit about the worker safety issue? As a building safety inspector who lives in the Bensonhurst uh, uh, area of Brooklyn told me, uh, he said the Bensonhurst is full of a lot of cops and firefighters and inspectors and that sort of thing. He said everyone with a badge got in his car and drove to, to Southern Manhattan, uh, Lower Manhattan. Um, you, you, you had, uh, you, you had a, a period of time <clears throat> for um, about an hour after the collapse where you actually couldn't see anything. Then, um, then the, um, the air cleared enough so the people could run into the site to try to find uh, survivors. Uh, and uh, for the sake of discussion, I feel that that the controlled chaos that was going on at that point um, was probably totally unavoidable for about 48 hours. Um, then, <clears throat> then at some point. Um, Someone should have said, "Okay, I'm controlling the site, and this is the rule." Um, the um, construction, um, the the on the twelfth, in other words, the day after, um, there were the site was divided into four quadrants very quickly. Um, this is working under uh, Mayor Giuliani's people, uh, uh, and so there was some operational responsibility. Uh, also, I was told that in the in the morning. Of the twelfth, a Bechtel, Bechtel safety <laughs> unit showed up. Uh, so there were people around uh, there who knew their cookies in terms of what work safety was all about. The the critical problem that I see happened here was a uh, failure of what is now called site command, um, <clears throat> and um, site command was put. There there was a brick throwing contest going on very early as to who was in charge. The firefighters wanted to be in charge. The police, because they called it a crime zone, crime area, uh, wanted to um, be in charge. Well, both um, uh, uh, the uh, the actual party put in charge by the mayor was the Department of Design and Construction, uh, which is really, really good at uh, starting with a clear uh, proper clear land, ex you know, site, and then supervising the construction, the design and construction of the building. Uh, this was a site which was uh, probably the worst hazardous site in America at that time, 
and uh, the exposures were unknown and serious, and uh, design and construction was completely overwhelmed. There's, <clears throat> there's one thing that's rather interesting that was pointed out to me by a, a very, very sharp guy named Don Ellisberg, which is that um, the um, hazard uh, management expertise of the fire department, and it was the fire department in New York City, like in other cities where hazard management is uh, located, that a disproportionate uh, share of these hazard management, management people were killed in the collapse. And so um, the city's capability of understanding and controlling hazards was sort of decapitated. Um, what, uh, interestingly, what happened since 9-11 pretty much separated. It was a, it was a movement underfoot before 9-11, and I assume that 9-11 actually uh, escalated or um, accelerated the development, was that in 2003-2004, the federal government issued uh, something called the National Incident Management System, which is a, uh, a, we could call it for short, a site command um, uh, system that has to be um, applied by every single emergency unit in this very country, down to where you are, um, Alan, in your local community. And what it does is it makes it crystal clear who's in charge of a site and how that should be handled. By the way, the um, a site command in um, at the Pentagon worked very well. Uh, the, it was not the Pentagon. It was, believe it or not, the Arlington County Fire Department. And the deputy chief of the Arlington, Arlington County Fire Department ran the whole thing and ran it very well. Okay. Well, at this point, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with Peter Rumanier to talk about the Royal Trade Center issues and also put Peter to the test in case of the day. We'll be right back. Workers' Comp Matters with attorney Alan S. Pierce is produced right here at the Legal Talk Network by a staff of professional news broadcasters. We're the only ones who can provide the best quality shows with the latest legal news, talk, and information in an interactive format you won't find anywhere else. We'll be right back on the Legal Talk Network with more from our host, attorney Alan S. Pierce, and his guests on Workers' Comp Matters, where we focus on the people and legal issues in workers' comp cases. Want to know more about Legal Talk Network host and attorney Alan S. Pierce? He's nationally known for his expertise in workers' comp and the law. Appointed by two governors to the State Workers' Compensation Advisory Council on the editorial board of the Journal of Workers' Compensation, leading lawyers across the country with a commitment beyond passion. Find out more about Attorney Pierce on the Legal Talk Network website under About Us. Well, welcome back. We are here at the Legal Talk Network talking to Peter Romanier about workers' compensation issues, safety issues, and claims issues that come out of the 9-11 tragedy at the World Trade Center. Peter, as a part of our show, we have a feature called Case of the Day, and I'm going to describe to you a case, uh, an appellate case actually out of the state of New York, and kind of ask your opinion. I know you're not an attorney, but uh, I value your opinion as to how you think the state of New York ruled on this case. And the case I'm referring to today is the case of Suzanne Shanbaum versus the Alliance Consulting Group. Now, Su Suzanne Shanbaum was a software solution architect, and she worked for Alliance Consulting Group, and their office was at the World Trade Center. And Suzanne had an apartment across the street from the World Trade Center, 
And on 9-11, she was working at her home. In her apartment, she had a company-owned laptop. She had logged on, checking her work-related emails when uh, the planes hit the Trade Center. And as she was running out of her apartment to evacuate, she had an injury and filed a claim for workers' compensation benefits. The Workers' Compensation Board denied her claim uh, on the grounds that she was not injured in the course of her employment, and she appealed it to the appellate division. On those limited facts, could you hazard a guess as to how she might have prevailed? Well, uh, of course, bearing in mind I'm, I'm not a lawyer, uh, it, it seems to me if she was working for the company, uh, and and I suspect, uh, it, and if it's shown that she on a regular basis worked for the company while at home, it seems to me the... Uh, the um, lo- location of her work is, or if it would be uh, irrelevant. Um, if it is, if you if you start with the idea that uh, with the with the, with the uh, accepting claims uh, for people who are working at the World Trade Center um, and who were um, uh, were injured and survived, well, you could have death benefits. But let's talk about survivors. I think there were several thousand people who were working at the World Trade Center who had injuries. Um, that figure may not be that high. Uh, it seems to me that if you were um, actually engaged in the work uh, and fortuitously right in that area, uh, that you would be covered. Now, um, the, the, there's a case um, that um, actually arose uh, in uh, and I'm not sure if it was a workers' comp case, but um, the um, cleaning of people at the work site um, were covered, even though they may be there only in the course of one day or so. So um, and they may be moving to another site uh, or many other sites during the course of the week or, the, or their term of employment. Um, I, uh, I I've always been I've always wondered uh, why um, someone or how someone would not be covered for work-related injury if the um, uh, if one is working at home as opposed to at work and if the normal course of work includes a lot of work at home. Well, that's that's exactly how the appellate division ruled when they overruled the Workers' Compensation Board. They found that there was substantial evidence supporting Suzanne's claim that her apartment actually became an extension of the employer's main office and they, that she therefore was in the course of her employment uh, when she did suffer her injury. So uh, congratulations, Peter. You, uh, oh. <laughs> you hit it. Well, that was lucky. Well, let's talk a little bit about... Um, how, where the money is coming from to compensate these claims? Is it private insurance? Uh, can you tell us how the Victim Compensation Fund interacts with workers' comp, or if, if at all, the Victim Compensation Fund, as you know, was set up by Congress immediately after um, the tragedy of 9-11 to compensate those killed uh, or seriously injured uh, in the building or on the planes. But has, is there something parallel to that now that deals strictly with workers' comp benefit? <clears throat> the Victim Compensation Fund um was uh it was it was designed um to handle only uh, uh deaths and injuries which happened 
in the immediate area or perimeter, immediate perimeter of the, of the site, which, of course, would include ground zero, and uh, the impairment or death had to happen within, I think, three days, 72 hours of the collapse or, or the attack. Now, um, it, and the filing had to be made within a couple of years. So that would have covered a relatively small number of workers. Now, as it happened, according to uh, Master Feinberg, there were, I think, about uh, there were there was a, a number of workers. I'm not forget the number, but they were in the, definitely in the high hundreds of workers who were rescue and recovery workers who were covered. But the, the vast majority of the rescue and recovery workers uh, would not have fallen into this. Either they came after 72 hours, and or uh, they did not file their claim within two years or so. Now, what what we have is um, an attempt to reopen or have sort of a, a, a another version of the Victims' Compensation Fund, um, which would be, from what I could see, would be based on the sort of, sort of the following theory, that the medical care, if any required, would be, which presumably would be required of the claimants, would be covered in full for the history, for the future uh, lifetime of the of the worker, and that the worker would receive some kind of um, uh, payment, uh, which would be not a wage replacement, but would be sort of like a, uh, a round dollar figure payment. Is this privately underwritten or governmentally? No, that would be the federal. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, the Congress appropriated a billion dollars. This is where it gets a little complicated, and let's see if we can keep this simple. Uh, that would be done, that would be covered by a combination of that billion dollars that would then be, uh, that's now in a captive uh, federal money that would be shifted over to the compensation fund, and possibly about a half a billion dollars of private insurance money all grouped together. And if people want more information, uh, your article is an excellent source. That's Risk and Insurance Magazine. Is there a way to access it online? Yeah. (laughs) Go to Risk and Insurance Magazine, and um, on uh, either the top of the page right now or later on, it'll be further down on the page, you'll see my name and you'll see a title called Breach of Trust. And I also would... Uh, ask Alan that if any of your listeners uh, have uh, some uh, situations where you have populations of workers who have diseases where the workers' comp system is not working, I would be very interested in hearing from them. And how could how could they reach you, Peter? Um, they um, they could uh, they could go to the website of Risk and Insurance and they can uh, find me there, or they can call me at my Vermont home at eight zero two. Four five seven nine one four nine. Thank you. That is Peter Romanier, an workers' compensation expert and authority who joined us this day on Workers' Comp Matters. We hope you'll join us for another show. Peter, thank you very much. Thanks for listening today. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. Go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other workers' comp matter shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. Money, 
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.